Lord Jesus, we love you. You are our greatest hope and our greatest treasure. And this morning, we offer you a sacrifice of praise. And we pray that you would direct our hearts and our mouths to openly proclaim your name that is good, Lord. Let us proclaim your name, who you are, and the things that you have done for us and among us. We love you, Jesus. We worship you this morning. Amen. Let's sing, would you guys stand and sing with us?
Good morning, Fellowship family. Hey, you may have a seat. We are so glad that you are here worshiping with us this morning. It's the fourth week in January. Can you believe it? It's crazy, and it? It's moving along. Fourth week in January, the fourth week and final week of our Jonah series. And if you haven't, if you're just now tuning into it, it's been incredible. It's been challenging for me, and I encourage you to go back and watch the videos of it, or the, the podcast of it, because it's, it's just really challenging. And so th- today will be the final week of it, but you can go back and see those. Matter of fact, you can tune in on the app and grab those, and, and I encourage you to get, download the Fellowship app. It's so robust. Everything that's going on here, everything I'm going to talk about, you can pick up on the app. But we're so glad you're here. If you're new, we would love the opportunity to get you connected. You can do that in a couple ways. You can scan the QR code that's on the screen. Um, it'll take you to the app or the website, fill out some information, we will follow up. Or you can stop by the middle booth in the foyer, and we would love to just answer any questions you have. We'd love the opportunity to buy you a cup of coffee and just hear your story and get you connected in church. We love this. This is our worship service, but we also love small groups, and there's tons of small groups kicking off right now. If you want to get connected in a small group, same thing. Stop by the booth or scan the QR code. We've got community groups launching. We've got men's groups and women's groups and celebrate recovery groups and groups of all kinds, and we would love to have you get connected, scan the QR code, and we will get you connected into one of those or stop by the booth in the foyer. Hey, we are a church that loves marriage. We love marriage, and we love to resource marriages. It's the reason we started Reengage a few years ago, and we'd love for all the, the couples in the church at some point go through Reengage. It's on Sunday nights. It's a small group program. Just show up. They'll get you plugged in. We love marriage, and we, we, we show it by having the counseling center because we all at times we need tune-up. We need help. We love marriage. We show it by, by doing community groups around marriage at times, and so we just we love marriage, but one of the things we love marriage or we love to resource marriages by is by uh, giving some pre-marriage training, and that's merge. So if you are uh, seriously dating or if you are engaged, we want to encourage you to take merge, or if you know somebody, maybe it's a, it's a community thing we love to do. We love people from the community, not just our church, to join merge, and it's a lot of fun. It's a, you sit at a table or you get into a home of a, a couple that's been married for a while, and it's a really, really neat thing that we do, and so if, if that's uh, interest to you, sign up. It starts February 20th. Hey, we started something this week called 40 Days of Prayer. Can you believe we're that close to the Bentonville campus opening February 27th? And so we are launching a Bentonville campus while at the same time we are relaunching this Rogers campus. And we need to pray and we need you to pray. We need you to commit to praying and you can do that by scanning the QR code, go to the app and when you get to it, it'll take you to the website. You can click the Bentonville Prayer Guide or the Rogers Prayer Guide and I'm gonna give you a tip. If you, there's a little box with an arrow coming out of it. It's called the share button. If you're not familiar with it, just ask somebody under 30. They can help you with it. But if you click that, you can actually put the prayer guide as an app on your home screen. And if you will pray, I guarantee things are gonna change in Northwest Arkansas. What if thousands of people prayed for Northwest Arkansas? I think things would change, and so we're super excited about that. Hey, don't be nervous by all the students on the wall there. We're glad you're here, students. We got somebody getting baptized in just a few minutes, and that's very exciting. But before that, today is a special day. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's a very important day. And, and we as a church, we love life. We, we value life, and we value life because God values life. And today celebrates the unborn child 
and the unborn child, the preborn child's life. And so we've got some information. We partner with uh, uh, Loving Choices. They're, they're a pregnancy crisis center. We love Loving Choices. Um, Steve uh, Lay was telling me about the early days of Loving Choices, and I know a number of you are involved, but in the early days, they met in the Lay's living room, and they were praying, and they weren't sure about resources. Now it's this very large organization um, all over Northwest Arkansas. And so, to, so we partner with Loving Choices. I know a number of you served there, but watch this video about Created for purpose, a unique genetic blueprint from the moment of conception. DNA woven together to determine gender, eye color, hair color, fearfully and wonderfully made. Valued beyond measure. Our culture says life is disposable, her rights matter most, it's not really a baby. And it's all one big choice. But God created us in his own image and whispered, I have called you by name, you are mine. In the United States, abortion is legal throughout the entire pregnancy, totally unrestricted. Most recently, abortion has been boxed up in the form of two little pills and a promise to make it all go away. What will you do to make a difference for life? How can you be a voice? Will you help save a life? There are over 2,700 pregnancy centers in the United States, serving men and women free of charge and full of hope, providing pregnancy tests, life-affirming counsel, abortion recovery, classes, clothing, and diapers. Many centers offer the first glimpse of a woman's baby in the womb displaying the magnificence of creation and the precious beats of a tiny heart, perfectly formed and fashioned by the one who created them. They serve faithfully, love well, encourage, they are hope dealers. They need volunteers, your prayers, and your financial support. Will you please give generously and help make a difference for life today? Well, I want to be real clear about this. This is not a political statement we're making. Matter of fact, it's not even a value statement. Students, I want you to hear this. This is not a, it's not a social statement. It's a value statement that this is what we believe. We believe in life. And we know that there are a number of families that have been impacted by abortion in our, in our church body. And we want you to know this is not a place of judgment. It's not. It's a place of hope and of grace. And if you've been impacted by that and you want somebody to process with, we'd love for you to stop by the prayer room or uh, come to our counseling center or talk to one of our staff or volunteers. We would love the opportunity to pray with you. But we value life and, our, and, our, and we value that and our, our decisions are, are not only informed by the scriptures, they're actually formed by the scriptures. The writer of Genesis said this. He said that all humanity is created in the image of God and is therefore valuable. And then listen to the psalmist's words, if you would. In Psalm 139, and this is familiar to many of you, but it says this. For you, God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when yet as there were none. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so grateful for life and the opportunity to live. We're so grateful for um, the unborn life. And Lord, we just stand before you today and we, we pray for this organization, Loving Choices, and the people that serve there, and, and we're grateful for them. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and as we navigate this path. And Lord, we pray um, and just thank you for your son who gives us life, eternal life, that his death gives us life. And we're grateful for that. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Loving Choices is in the foyer this morning at one of the booths. They would love to visit with you. And speaking of life, we've got a baptism this morning. So Kyle, take it away. Thanks, John. You took my transitioning line. Speaking of life, we have a baptism. Speaking of life. Money. Uh, Hey, we have Cruz Wellborn here today, a seventh grade uh, Bentonville student. He's going to be baptized, and baptizing him is his father, David, um, here to also share a little bit of his story. And something that's really, really cool about the way we've been doing baptism recently as a church is we invite our FSM Fellowship Student Ministries Ministry over into uh, this congregation as we do the baptism. So seventh and eighth grade, can y'all show the rest of the body um, how we get excited about new life in Jesus as Cruz um, comes up out of the water? And so um, from there, David, you can go ahead and share a little bit about Cruz and his new life found in Jesus. Yeah, so Cruz started his journey to salvation at New Life Ranch, and after that summer, he had a lot of questions. And after a few deep conversations, uh, about three or so months ago, he asked me a few key questions, and at that point, it was more of him confirming his beliefs. So that night, he prayed to accept Jesus into his heart. So, Cruz, I'm so proud of you. Do you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and do you believe that he died for your sins? Is it your desire to be publicly baptized here today? Yes. It is my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Put your hand over your nose. There you go. Baptized with Christ. And baptized. And rise to walk a new life. (laughs) Come here, man. Give me a hug. And come on out here. Amen. Let's celebrate that as we continue to sing. Oh! 
Lord, you are great. And together as a body, we stand in awe of you today. As we sing these songs, as we look at these lyrics, Lord, we know that you are creator. We know that you are a sustainer, Jesus. We know that you are holding all things together. With your breath of life, you animate every living thing. Lord, would you let that bring us to a point of awe this morning and a point of thankfulness. And as we look to your word to teach us and to guide us, would you help us to recognize that it is your living word giving us life as we learn to walk more closely with you every day, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for who you are and the things that you have done. We say all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Take a seat. Well, good morning. Hey, I'm Nick. I haven't been with y'all in a while. Um, I was at the grocery store about a month ago, and I ran to somebody, and they said, hey, where'd you go? Um, I didn't get fired, by the way, in case we you know, put that rumor to rest. Um, hey, so here at Fellowship, we exist as one church under one group of elders and leadership under the Bible committed to the same biblical truth about the good news of Jesus uh, to, to shape who we are and to go to our community in the world. Uh, one shared value and mission and vision for our church, but we gather in multiple congregations across Northwest Arkansas. So we have a Fayetteville congregation um, that's gathering right now. Um, we'll be launching a Bentonville congregation here in about a month. Really excited about that. And then here at the Rogers campus, we actually have three different congregations that gather across the weekend. So on Friday night, we have Celebrate Recovery. On Saturday night, we have Fellowship Mosaic, and then on Sunday morning, we have Fellowship Rogers, all a part of one big church gathering together. And so um, I got the joy to jump in last August with the Fellowship Mosaic congregation on Saturday nights uh, to, to lead that team and to work with preaching and teaching there, and so that's where I've been. Um, and people ask the question, what makes uh, Fellowship Mosaic on Saturday night different than Sunday morning? In substance, nothing. Uh, we have the same beliefs, the same core values. Um, we gather in large group worship and in small groups of the week. We're going after the same mission uh, that you know here at Fellowship Rogers. The biggest difference is we meet on Saturday nights, um, which means a couple things. One, you know, it's, it's a smaller, more intimate gathering, a place to, where maybe it's a little bit easier to, to get connected and know to be known by sheer size. And there's a different feel because instead of people getting up on Sunday morning and getting ready for church, they're often coming off the soccer field or out of yard work. And so it's a little bit more casual laid back in some ways. Although, let's be honest, we're pretty casual laid back on Sunday morning too. So, um, hey, I just want to tell you that uh, we would love if, if that's a good fit for you. Usually this time in the morning, I'm still in PJs drinking coffee. Um, and so if Saturday night sounds like a, a place you'd love to be, we'd love to see you on Saturday night. But I'm really thankful uh, to be here this morning, thankful that Sam and the team invited me to come back around. And so uh, we're jumping into Jonah chapter 4. I think I can honestly say Jonah is my favorite book of the Old Testament. And Jonah chapter 4 is my favorite chapter in my favorite book of the Old Testament. So I'm super excited to jump in this morning. But before, before we jump straight into Jonah 4, there is, there is something going on in the background of this story that I think we have to cover first. There's some information that undergirds everything that's happening in this book of the Bible. And it has to do with who God is and how we know that about him. Almost everybody has some idea of, of who God is that comes into their mind. Um, you'll hear them say things like, oh, God would never do that. Oh, God is like this. God cares about this. And it's an interesting question when somebody makes a statement like that just to ask, 
hey, how'd you come to believe that? Where'd you learn that about God? Even the atheist, when they reject God, they have an idea in their mind of what kind of God doesn't exist. Where do these ideas of God come from? By the time we get to Jesus, historically, we already have 2,000 years of God making his character known to his people. So that there's already a clear idea of what God is like that has been shaped in the minds of the people who know him. And one of the most significant moments in God making himself known comes to us in Exodus chapter 34. To give you a little background about that chapter, if you've heard the story of Moses and the Exodus, or if you've seen the cartoon Prince of Egypt, you have a little bit of a context of what's going on here. God's people have been slaves in Egypt under an oppressive regime, and God calls a man Moses to lead them out. And the way that happens is Moses is minding his own business out in the desert, um, leading sheep around, and a bush catches on fire and starts talking to him. And that bush says, Moses... I am the Lord, I'm the one true God, I'm Yahweh. This is how you're gonna know me, go lead my people and bring them back. So Moses does that, he leads them out of Egypt, God rescues them from slavery and he brings them back to that same mountain. And at that mountain, God starts telling Moses, I'm gonna take you into this land and I'm gonna show you how you're gonna walk with me. I'm gonna show you what I'm gonna do for you and the people and what I expect of you. And Moses, hearing from God, says, hey, if I'm gonna lead these people, I need to know you better. I need to know more of what you're like. In fact, I want you to show me your glory. Pull the curtains back and give me a complete vision of who you are. And you know what God says to Moses? You would die. You're not ready for that. You can't handle that. But I still am gonna show you more of who I am. So he has Moses hide behind a rock and God covers him and he passes by him and this is what he says. As God is passing by Moses, he says, the Lord, the Lord, that's his name, Yahweh, Yahweh. And when a name is proclaimed twice in a row like that, you're about to find out what that name means. God's about to explain, this is what Yahweh means. This is what it means to know your Lord, your God. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, my guess is that most of us, when we hear that, are really taken by that idea of God punishing the children for the parents of the third and fourth generation. And we go, what? Does God really do that? Does he curse generations because of a mistake the parents made? And to key in on that is to miss the entire point. You see, Hebrew language loves to make a point by exaggerated comparisons, putting two things next to each other to show how far apart they are. Notice the numbers involved. To how many does God show love and mercy? What's the number? Say it out loud. Thousands. And to how many generations is he willing to discipline for sin? Three or four. That's supposed to stand out to us. We're supposed to feel the weight of that. God is gracious and forgiving, and he also disciplines wrongdoing. But if you put them on a scale, if you try to measure God's mercy and his forgiveness against his discipline, 
His mercy is overwhelming. His grace is overwhelming. So don't get the idea that sin doesn't matter to God. Don't get the idea that God won't discipline rebellion. He will. And yet, his mercy, compassion, and grace is overwhelming. He's willing, if Israel walks in rebellion, to put them in a season of discipline. This is speaking corporately here probably not individually, saying corporately for a nation, if the nation rebels, they might go into a season of punishment that might last a few generations. That's the idea. And yet, his mercy and his compassion and his grace is overwhelming. That is his heart, is he is a God who is slow to anger and quick to forgive. By the way, you know what Israel's doing while God is telling Moses this? They're at the bottom of the mountain making a golden calf ready to rebel against him. So he's giving Moses this understanding of who he is because he knows Moses is about to go find Israel in rebellion. This idea of God, this description of God in Exodus 34 is the most quoted description of what God is like in the whole Bible. It shows up over and over again in the Psalms and we're gonna see that this very passage, this very description of God is what has been on Jonah's mind for the entire book. So with that in mind, let's take a look at Jonah chapter four. What's just happened in Jonah chapter three is Jonah's given his message to Nineveh of that their doom is coming, and Nineveh repented. They turned from their ways, and we're told that God relented of the destruction that he had promised. And Nineveh was supposed to be destroyed. This wicked, evil people are gonna be destroyed, but when they turned from their wickedness, God said, okay, I won't destroy you. That's what's just happened in chapter three when we pick up in Jonah Chapter four, verse one. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Now, one of the things that the book of Jonah does, it's a literary masterpiece, and it loves to do plays on words, where the same word gets used over and over again, but with slightly different meanings. And, and the key, one of the key words in the book of Jonah is this Hebrew word, ra'ah. Everybody say ra'ah. It's just a fun word to say. And it's got a wide range. It can go, on one end, it can describe personal discomfort or misery. Or it can describe some kind of calamity or disaster. Or it can describe a great moral evil. So at the very beginning of the book, when, Jonah, when God first, first speaks to Jonah, he says, go to Nineveh and preach against them because their ra'ah has come up before me. Is it their misery, their disaster, or their evil? It is because of Nineveh's ra'ah that Jonah is sent there in the first place. Jonah goes and he preaches, and they relent, God, er, God, they repent, God relents and shows mercy, and now you know what Jonah says? God, this thing you have done is ra'ah to me. Your mercy poured out on this people is maybe miserable to me, maybe a disaster to me, or on the strongest sense, Jonah might be saying is a great moral evil. Think about the audacity of the Hebrew prophet who's supposed to be representing the character of God to the people, now looking at God and saying, what you've done is a disaster, and I don't like it. And Jonah gets angry. He prayed to the Lord 
Remember the last time Jonah prayed to the Lord? Yeah, he was in the belly of a fish. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Does that little quote sound familiar? Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Guys, this is a three-year-old temper tantrum. Picture this story being told around the fire 2,500 years ago to a bunch of little Hebrew kids. Like, I think the storyteller would embellish. They, when you do Hebrew storytelling, you always really get into character and you try to draw things out. And they would embellish the temper tantrum here. And I think Hebrew kids would be falling out of their chairs laughing. Like, you're supposed to get the ridiculousness of this moment that this God we've heard about all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, shows mercy, and Jonah goes, I knew that what, that's what you would do. You're always compassionate, and I'm so angry about it. Thomas Carlyle tried to capture um, this, this section of Jonah in a poem, and he went like this. The generosity of God displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he slashed with angry prayer at the graciousness of the Almighty. I told you so, he screamed. I knew what you would do, you dirty forgiver. You bless your enemies and show kindness to those who despitefully use you. I would rather die than live in a world with a God like you. And don't you dare try to forgive me. We're supposed to be struck by the ridiculousness of this moment. And what I find really fascinating is in the midst of Jonah complaining about God's mercy, compassion, and patience, God is about to be really merciful, compassionate, and patient with Jonah. Because in the middle, like a good, patient parent, while Jonah's throwing his tantrum, God becomes a teacher. And he does that by asking a question. Verse four, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? That's a profound question, isn't it? Now, emotions are, are simply emotions. You just feel what you feel. But emotions often point to what we value. You see, when we are joyful, that's usually because we're experiencing something really valuable to us. When we are sad, we usually have lost something valuable to us. And when we are angry, it's usually because something we value has been disrespected. Something we value has been stomped on. That's that sense of injustice, is you know something that should be valuable is being disregarded. So, so God's pushing on Jonah's values here. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? What value has been so disregarded to make you so angry? What are you cherishing, Jonah, that would drive you to anger at me being merciful to the Ninevites? So he asked Jonah that question. Is it right for you to be angry? And then the, the storyteller zooms back out here. Possibly he's rewinding a little bit to show what initially happened after Jonah preached his message. So in verse five, we said, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Again, I think we should be caught up in how comical this scene is. The prophet goes into the city, proclaims doom, marches outside the city, builds himself a little tent, and sits like this, waiting to see what's going to happen. The prophet sits down east of the city, 
And then we see the great teacher go to work. In verse six, the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. Hey, by the way, anyone wanna guess at what Hebrew word that word discomfort is? Ra'ah. Now think about this. You have the ra'ah of the great wicked Ninevites. And then you have the ra'ah of the disaster that's supposed to come on them. And then you have the ra'ah of Jonah's great anger of what he thinks is so wrong. And now God provides a plant to give shade to eat Jonah's little ra'ah. To give him comfort in his discomfort. There's this word provide that's another one of these key words in Jonah that ties the story together. It happens three times here in this passage, four times overall in the book of Jonah. You know when the first time was? When Jonah provided a fish, or when God provided Jonah a fish to rescue him from the water. This word provide in Jonah is a key to let you know that God is at work using his sovereignty over nature to redirect Jonah. In chapter two, God's provision of the fish redirected Jonah's steps. It took a wayward prophet going the wrong direction and brought him back. Here in chapter four, God's provision is to redirect Jonah's heart. And so, in, while Jonah's sitting out, suffering in the heat, in his own temper tantrum and misery, God provides him a plant to give him shade, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Look at the transformation that happens in this guy. Stomping mad temper tantrum to exceedingly happy about his shade. Again, we should get the picture of the little kid who's throwing a temper tantrum and you hand them a cookie and they're suddenly really happy. Jonah's so happy about his plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. Again, we should feel kind of the silliness, like this is a cartoon-type moment here. Like Jonah's in the, in the heat and it's burning up and whoop, up grows a little plant to give him shade. And the next day, the worm comes out of the ground and chews through it so it dies. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. By the way, this is probably not exaggeration. Um, you're talking about east of Nineveh in Assyria, out in the desert, in the sun, and the scorching wind would be hot enough to literally make you pass out. The sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And then God asks the same question he asked a few moments ago. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Let's check your values here, Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? Jonah replies, it is. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. And then in verse 10, God brings the message home. The Lord said to him, you've been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from the left? 
and also many animals. I love that that's the end of the book. And there are animals. Again, the humor is brought in to make a point. If you remember back to chapter three, when the king of Nineveh called a feast or a fast, he said, everybody's gonna repent, everyone's gonna pray, everyone's gonna fast, and they're gonna dress in sackcloth. Do you remember who else fasted and had to dress in sackcloth? The animals. The king made the animals fast, poor animals. The animals had to dress in sackcloth. They were part of the repentance. They were part of what God relented of destroying. And I think, again, in a humorous way, the author of this story is trying to expose the ridiculousness of Jonah's value system. Almost every culture has a similar value system for biological life. At the bottom is plant life. In the middle is animal life. And at the top is human life. That would have been true of Hebrew culture as well. And God is pointing out, Jonah, you were angry that a bunch of humans were spared and angry that you lost your plant. Maybe you have an upside-down value system. Maybe it's just flipped up. So do you care about the animals in the middle, maybe? Anything? Eugene Peterson captured it this way. He suggested that what God is saying is, Jonah, if you can turn from raging anger to delight over a plant, surely I can turn from raging anger to delight over people being spared, over people repenting. If your emotions can swing from anger to joy to anger over the fate of a plant that you have no investment in, you did nothing to make this thing grow, you had it for a day, it was the dirty Santa gift that you held for 30 seconds before somebody stole it from you, then surely these people whom as Psalm 139 says that I knit together in their mother's womb, that I know every hair on their head, that I have watched every moment of their lives and I care about them. Surely, if you can feel so strongly about the loss of your plant, can't I feel concern over these people? And shouldn't you also? Jonah was infuriated to lose his comfort of the shade. He felt threatened to have his comfort taken away and had no compassion for an entire city doomed to destruction. Again, Carlisle captures this moment in a poem. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonah's in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. Now, it's easy to mock Jonah. We're supposed to. You're supposed to read this story and be struck by the absurdity of this man. But, like all good satire and comedy, just as it exposes an absurdity that we're supposed to laugh at, it's also supposed to boomerang back on us. As we mock Jonah, the question should be popping up in our mind. Surely, Surely I don't ever put protecting my comfort, security, and prosperity above seeing people shown mercy and compassion 
and grace and finding life in knowing the God I know. Would I ever do that? Would I ever feel so threatened by the idea that my security and prosperity might be taken away that I would rage against the idea of an undeserving person being shown mercy? Now, I have friends who have chosen to voluntarily make this choice to leave a lot of comfort and security and great jobs here in the States to go to another place that is dangerous and scary for the sake of the gospel. I was talking to one of my friends who serves in a very dangerous place and in the city um, adjacent to the one they work in, there's a group of people that have put a, a bounty on Christians' heads and they're mobilizing young men who are living in poverty saying, I will give you this much money if you bring me a dead Christian. And he said, but that movement hasn't come to our city yet. We're a few hours away from that kind of thing. But we know it could come and we choose that for the sake of the gospel. Some will choose voluntarily to, to forfeit their comfort and their security and their safety to go. But what if a threat to your comfort and security and safety came here? I have a friend who's a pastor who was, who was emailed a news story about a city in the States where a large number of people from another country were moving in who were non-Christian, and it was creating all kinds of tension and, and even violence in the city as the clash of cultures was taking place. And they asked the pastor, isn't this bad for America? And my friend responded, it may be very bad for America and very good for the kingdom of God. Would you make that trade? Would you be willing to make the trade of a loss of your comfort and security and prosperity for the sake of undeserving people coming in contact with God's grace. It's interesting because that's the heart of our God who looked at us when we were his enemies. He says, while you, Paul wrote, while we were his enemies, he died for us. You see, Jonah was infuriated about the loss of the plant that brought him comfort so these wicked Ninevites would be saved. These people who 100 years later are going to decimate his land. Salvation for the Ninevites meant death for Israel. When we worship a God who hung on a tree so that undeserving me could find grace. What would it look like if we were a church that mirrored the personality of God? What would it look like if we were a people who were filled with mercy and compassion, overflowing with love and forgiveness and grace, even toward those who are offensive to us, even toward those we deem a threat to our way of life, to our security, even to the, the person who moves into your neighborhood that you really don't want to have as a neighbor, toward being in a community group with the person from the other political party, you know the one I'm talking about, right? What would it look like if we lived in a community 
where when somebody was struggling with sexual addiction or substance abuse and they started reaching out for help, people went, oh, you need to go to fellowship because they love and welcome people really well who are struggling. What if somebody who had a different sexual orientation and was struggling with understanding what that meant but wanted to meet Jesus was told, hey, go to fellowship. You'll hear the gospel there and they'll welcome you in even as you're trying to figure out what this means for you. What if when people move to this area from another country and they don't speak the language yet and they don't even know how to find groceries yet, when they're first landing here, they're told, go to fellowship. They love welcoming people who are different and who are from a different place. What if that was our reputation in this community? A people who were willing to become uncomfortable. What if people who are going through the pain of divorce, people who've hit rock bottom financially, what if our reputation in this community was go to fellowship because that is a place abounding in mercy, compassion, kindness, love, and grace? Here's the deal. We will, that, that, that's not something that you can do institutionally. You don't put that on a website and suddenly change everything. That happens when the people begin to have their hearts shaped to look like God's. And you will never, you and I will never have that kind of mercy and compassion unless we first have received it. Unless we understand and deeply receive that we are Jonah. That we're the ones shaking our fist at God and God is patient and tender with us. That he's a kind and gracious teacher forgiving us of our sins, forgiving us of our stubborn rebellion and transforming us so that once we have known and been changed by the authentic Jesus, we can express him and his grace to those around us. I'm convinced that a community who was so shaped by the loving character of God, a church family so transformed by the love of Jesus would see the community around them and the world transformed as well. And I believe sincerely that's what God is calling us to. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Your grace can be offensive sometimes. It doesn't work with our economy. It doesn't work with our understanding of how things should be arranged. I want people to get what they deserve until it comes to me. So Lord, first of all, thank you for your grace in my life. Thank you that you loved your enemies enough to die for them. And Lord, I pray that as we as a community experience and receive that love, that we'll extend it to others. This is all for your glory and for your people's joy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Give and take away my heart.
Jesus, in view of your mercy and in view of your grace, would you give us the strength to offer our lives as a living sacrifice for you? May our lives be an act of worship for you, Lord. Would you help us not to conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds? Would you help us to see things like you do, to love people like you do, Lord, and help us to know your good and pleasing and perfect will so that we can carry it out on this earth. We love you, Lord, amen. Fellowship, we love you. If you are in need of prayer this morning, our prayer room is open to you. Um, otherwise, you are dismissed. <laughs>